Desire Power, Chapter 4, The Evolution of Desire, Continued. The will to live, or the life forces of nature, are concerned not merely with the preservation and continuance of the life of the individual, but also quite as truly and forcibly with that of the propagation and transmission of life to the offspring, with the life of the species as well as that of the individual. Desire for reproduction. The elemental desire for reproduction of the species for the transmission of life through offspring is one of the most fundamental and basic and also one of the most powerful desires of all living things. Its essential spirit manifests along subconscious lines and the living creature acts instinctively to manifest and express the urge of the desire usually without any conscious recognition of the end in view of nature of the will to live, but those ends are definite and certain nevertheless. So strong is this desire in its various forms and phases that the individual creature will often sacrifice its own life in the pursuit of the objects of the desire. The elemental desire manifests in two general forms or phases, each of which proceeds with the same original end in view, though existing only subconsciously. These two general forms or phases are as follows. One, love of and desire for mates. And two, love of, desire for, and desire to protect and provide for the offspring. The love of home, country, people, and its derivative emotions of patriotism and loyalty to race also spring from the same general source. Nature, or the will to live has here in view the perpetuation of the tribe, family, species, and race. The love of home, country, people, and its derivative emotions of patriotism and loyalty to race also spring from the same general source. Nature, or the will to live, has been here in view the perpetuation of the tribe, family, species, and race. The love of mates is a very strong emotion and its associated desires of, of the very strongest nature. Men have willingly laid down their lives in the pursuit of and the protection of their mates. The lower animals manifesting the same general tendency in quite as strong degree. As the scale of life is ascended, this form of desire takes on an additional complexity and an increased degree of refinement and delicacy but the elemental urge is always underneath and back of the feeling and desire. The call of sex and the mating instinct distinguishes the race of men as well as the lower animals. In primitive man, this desire is but little above that of the lower animals. While in cultured man, it rises far above its source and is closely involved with other feelings and desires. But even in its higher forms, the elemental and primitive urge is there. The flavor of its salt pervades the entire ocean of love of man for woman and of women for men, penetrating even into its most sheltered bays, inlets, and ocean-flowing rivers. Even in the so-called platonic love, its tang is perceptible, though seemingly unsought and often ignored for a time. 
Nature, whatever we may mean by that term, is seemingly inspired by the will to live, to manifest existence through her manifold forms of life. She finds it necessary to cause her creatures to perpetuate their kind in order that she may so manifest that will to live in the futurity of life forms. Unless her creatures are inspired in some way to pass the flame of life from the torches of one generation to those of another, she will not be able to manifest continuous and unbroken existence. This being the case, Dame Nature proceeds to arrange adroitly for the maintenance of the cycle of life. She works in wondrous ways to bring about the fulfillment of her desires and purposes, and but few escape her net. Instead of employing merely a driving force, however, she also employs an attracting energy. This energy is manifested in the feelings, emotions, affections, and desires of the love of mates, the mating instinct, the call of sex, keeping her massive form in the background and well out of sight. Nature employs the rosy-cheeked, plumply-formed cherub named Cupid to awaken the heart of man to love. She employs diplomacy to affect her purposes. Emerson tells us, the lover seeks in marriage his own private felicity and perfection and no prospective end. But nature hides in his happiness her own end, the perpetuity of the race. We are made alive and kept alive by the same means. Bronson says, when the man and maid meet, exchange glances and experience those peculiar little flutterings of the heart, there is something more than this really happening. Nature is then at work, her best beloved work. In the happiness of the lovers is concealed the cheerful content of nature. In their ecstatic smiles may be discerned the complacent expression of satisfaction on the face of nature. In their ardent avowals, protestations, and promises may be heard the echoes of nature's contented sigh. The lovers feel so exalted by the song of love that they think that nature must stand still, observe, and listen. Nature indeed does observe and listen, and very keenly too, but she does not stand still not even for a moment. She is too busily engaged in working out things for the lovers and incidentally for herself as well. In the case of primitive man, the mating instinct was but little more than the sex instinct of the lower animals. The mating was but for a brief period and mates were changed with the seasons. But as man ascended the scale, the mating instinct took on a higher, more complex and more permanent form. There gradually dawned upon the race consciousness the idea of home and family, of a more permanent union. The idea of companionship began to manifest its wondrous powers with ever-increasing force. The idea of a mate began to take on a new meaning, the meaning of companionship and comradeship. In the beginning, man wanted merely a physical mate. Then he wanted a companion, a social mate. Then he began to want his mate to share his emotional nature, his likes, his tastes. He wanted her to love the things that I love. The aesthetic emotions and desires also came into play. The intellectual feelings and desires also entered into the combination. Finally, man now wants to be mated physically, mentally, emotionally, and spiritually. 
We hear now of mental mates, physical mates, and even of soul mates. The primitive element of sex is always there, however, though manifesting along more complex and more subtle lines. To all prospective mates, sex utters this warning. They reckon ill who leave me out. Nature and the will to live are still managing affairs in their own interests. The love of offspring. Another phase of the desire for reproduction is that which manifests in the the love of offspring and the desire to protect and provide for the young is one of the strongest and most persistent forms of feeling and desire. It is found highly manifested in the higher species of the lower animals, and it is one of the chief motives of human conduct and activity. The parent animal or human being frequently does not hesitate to risk or even to sacrifice life in defense of the offspring. It is common for the parent to suffer hunger and privation in order that the wants of the offspring be satisfied. Here again, nature or the will to live is strongly in evidence in its careful and persistent endeavor to secure the welfare of the young creature. The will to protect and provide for the young manifest in nature is evidenced not only in the implanting in the race of the feeling and desire to maintain more or less permanent mating union on the part of the parents. Nature has in view not merely the birth of the young creature, but also its protection after birth until such time it is able to take care of itself. For the first end, it superimposes the mating instinct upon the emotional nature of the living things. For the second, it superimposes the love of offspring and the family feeling upon the nature of the animal or man. In this last, we have the key to many important desires and activities of man and of the lower animals. Science has established the truth of the general proposition that the degree of the manifestation of the mating instinct in the direction of a more or less permanent association between the male and female animal and in the establishment and maintenance of the family group is directly determined by the degree in which the male parent is needed to provide for and to aid the mother and her offspring. This statement refers to the species, not to the particular individual. In many cases, the association of the mates extends over merely the period of the immediate needs of the offspring and the nursing mother. The young of the reptiles and fishes require no paternal and no parental care. And as a consequence, there is no real union or mated association between the parents. Even where there is a semblance of permanency in the union, it will be found that the female requires some degree of temporary protection for a short period preceding the birth of the young. All such association among the reptiles and fishes is seen to depend entirely upon the welfare of the future offspring. Birds mate and form a union which lasts only during the nesting season as a rule. The male is needed to protect the nest, to feed the brooding hen bird, and to feed the young. The cuckoo and similar nest-stealing birds which lay their eggs in the nests of other birds and are thereby relieved of any care of hatching the eggs or feeding the young display no real attachment for their mates beyond the period of the temporary sexual impulse. And they form no mating unions of even the most brief duration. 
Such birds always relieved of the responsibilities of parenthood are the varietists of the bird family associating promiscuously and indiscriminately and not remaining in each other's society for any definite period. Not only this, but even the real mothers in the animal kingdom manifest material affection only in the degree of the requirements of the young and only during the period in which such protection is needed. For instance, the reptile mothers and the fish mothers have no responsibility for their offspring, the young creatures being able to take care of themselves from birth. Consequently, the mother fish or mother reptile in such cases shows no sign of maternal affection. This is also true of the insects. Yet strange to say, such creatures usually are found to possess an instinctive affection for their eggs and will even risk or sacrifice their lives in order to protect their eggs or else in order to deposit the eggs in conditions favorable for their protection and development. This done, the emotional feeling, affection, and desire pass away, having served nature's purpose adequately. The instinctive care and trouble manifested by the female insect in providing a promising and appropriate place for depositing her eggs is one of the great wonders of natural history. The housewife experiences proof of this instinct when she discovers valuable clothing destroyed by the moth because the mother moth has sought a nice dark closet containing soft woolen fabrics in which to deposit her eggs. The wasp, which stings into insensibility the spider in order to deposit her eggs in the living body of the latter, so that her future offspring may be provided with fresh food, is another illustration of this law of nature. The ordinary dung beetle evidences a similar care and solicitude for the welfare of her eggs. Yet none of these creatures manifests even the slightest degree of affection for their young when they are hatched. Their young do not need such affection and care and consequently the mother creatures are not endowed with the feelings and desires leading to these. Professor William James says, why does the hen submit herself to the tedium of incubating such a fearfully uninteresting set of objects as a nest full of eggs unless she have some sort of prophetic instinct of the result. Why does a particular maiden turn our wits upside down? The common man can only say, of course, we love the maiden, that beautiful soul clad in that perfect form, so palpably and flagrantly made from all eternity to be loved. And so probably does each animal feel about the particular actions it tends to perform in response to certain stimuli. To the broody hen, the notion seems monstrous that there should be a creature in the world to whom a nest full of eggs was not the utterly fascinating, precious, and never to be too much sat upon object, which it is to her. What a delicious thrill may not shake a fly when at last she discovers the one particular leaf or other object or material that out of all the world can stimulate her egg laying. Need she care or know anything about the future maggot and its food? You have noticed how when the offspring no longer require attention, care and food, the mother animal thrusts them away from her and compels them thenceforth to conduct their business of life on their own. When that period is passed, all her maternal affection seems to die out and thenceforth the young animals are no more to the mother 
than are any of the many other animals of her acquaintance. The need of the offspring has passed. The emotion has played its part and the desire passes away. Even in human life, we often see the strongest affection grow up in the heart of a woman for some motherless child not connected with her by ties of blood. This particularly if the care of the young child has temporarily developed upon her. Even the coldest hearted woman usually will learn to love a babe for whom she is compelled constantly to care and provide. And even the hardest hearted man will feel an affection for a child for whom he is compelled to care in person. There is something inside of them which makes them act and feel that way. Farmers know that if a motherless lamb is once permitted by a mother's sheep to nurse at her teats, then that lamb will thereafter be carefully protected by that mother's sheep, even though she did not welcome it before the nursing and indeed had to be coaxed into allowing it to nurse in the first instance. The need of the young creature awakens the instinctive affection and desire of the older animal. It is held that the instinctive feeling and desire of the human creature for a permanent mating and union, the creation and maintenance of the family, arose from the long-continued needs of the human mother and child for the protection of the father. By the time that one child was comparatively able to take care of itself, another infant was there to be protected and provided for. Says Salaby, the unique helplessness of the human baby, one of the most wonderful and little appreciated facts in the whole of nature to eyes that can see, has a supremely practical point of view. The principle of marriage is that of survival value. Nature's invariable criterion is that of survival value or service to race culture. That form of marriage, which does not permit the babies to survive, the babies do not permit it to survive. It is not a question of the father's taste and fancy, but of what he leaves above ground when he is underground. This then is the deep soil from which has sprung and grown the wonderful love of man and woman for each other in its highest and most beautiful forms, as well as in its crudest and ugliest phases. From this soil also has sprung the beautiful love of parents for their children, of children for parents. It is the cause of the cling to feeling and desire so marked in the woman and the child of the desire to be clung to by the woman and the child which lies deeply embedded in the soul of the man. The soil is nature's needs for the welfare and perpetuation of the race. The blossoms and flowers are due to man's and woman's cultivation of the soil and tender care for the growing plant. <laughs>